Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Live from New York, I'm Richard Quest sitting in for Julia Chatterley. This is First Move. And here's your need to know. There's little sign of recovery. If you look at the job numbers, another 1.3 million U.S. jobs filed for unemployment. U.S. workers filing for unemployment. Still well over a million. In China, a different story. The rally continues. A positive data which is pushing the market even higher. We need to understand exactly what's behind all of that. And Hong Kong is tackling a new coronavirus outbreak. Is it a second wave? Is it a third wave? It doesn't really matter. The numbers are going up, and that's something we'll be talking about in this hour. It is Thursday. Now, let's make a move. And a very good morning to you, or good afternoon, or good evening, depending where in the world you're joining us. Uh, welcome to First Move. Julia's out today. I'm Richard Quest. We have, of course, it being a Thursday, fresh U.S. economic numbers on the jobless front uh, that show. We'll talk about it in detail at the moment. But those jobless numbers are giving the market the impetus and giving the market the direction as we get underway. 1.3 million new jobless claims. It's less than expected. However, you've got to put it in the totality, the aggregate. Nearly 50 million Americans have now sought assistance since mid-March. The number of people still collecting benefits remains elevated, highly elevated. That's the so-called continuing claims number. It is down slightly, but it's still 18.1 million. So people are coming back off the rolls, but some are still staying there longer. U.S. futures are higher. The tech rally remains the big story. The Nasdaq, this is extraordinary. The Nasdaq is set to rise to new records at more than 16% year to date. And Europe's mostly higher. Germany, the big gainer, with the data showing German exports on the rise. Uh, Not surprisingly, that you you take into account what happened in March, April, but May things are starting to improve again, and that's why you're seeing exports on the rise. Looking at the numbers, Paris, uh, the the, the Zetradax is the best of the session, and the software giant SAP rising more than 5% on second quarter results. Business has snapped back faster than expected, says SAP. A look at Asia across the board. The Chinese market rose for an eighth straight session. We'll interpret that for you, the reasons why. And if you look at the difference, the others are going up, the Kospi and the Hang Seng by a third or a half, but it's one and a third percent for the Shanghai Composite. Gold is off just a tad, still above $1,800 an ounce. And these are the, those are the numbers we need to get to the drivers. Christine Romans is with me. 
Um, I, I don't know what to make of these, this particular number. It's still over a million, so it's elevated. It's clearly a trend in the right direction, but it doesn't fully account for those states that reimpose lockdowns. So what do we make of this number? You know, this number, uh, another week, 16 weeks above a million people filing for the first time for unemployment benefits. Just that alone shows you we are in the middle of an ugly recession. A lot of people are out of work. The economist Chris Rupke put out a note this morning, don't lose your job. It's bad out there. And he said these numbers really do reinforce the need uh, for more stimulus in this economy when you get over that benefits cliff at the end of September, when a lot of the initial stimulus will will run out. In aggregate, you're right, almost 50 million people have filed for the first time for unemployment benefits um, since this crisis began 16 weeks ago. That's 30.6 percent of the pre-pandemic labor market. Think of that. A third of the people who were working in the beginning of March at some point have now filed for unemployment benefits. It just shows you the crushing blow of the, the pandemic on the labor market. And what's fascinating is it felt like there was hiring. We saw that in the monthly numbers. We saw 4.8 million jobs hired back. Great news. But that was before, right. before these states started rolling back their reopenings because of a resurgence of the virus. So, Christine, the thing I want to point out, of course, is United Airlines overnight, the letter to employees warning about 36,000 potential furloughs uh, as a result after the CARES Act comes to an end at the beginning of October. Now, whatever the reasons why they are doing it, it shows that firstly, there is another shoe to drop. And secondly, the uncertainty is so great. I don't know whether we can make any good predictions. I think you're right. I mean, I think the only prediction that holds is that these airlines are going to be smaller on the other side of this. They're not going to have the footprint that they had before. By law, by law, the company has to give employees 60 days announcing these layoffs are are, are furloughs. So there you go. You've got that again, that that benefits cliff that we're talking about uh, coming undone, this CARES Act financing winding down, and these airlines are trying to figure out what they're going to look like, detailing their plans for what they're going to look like going forward. American Airlines uh, previously had said about 20,000 jobs, but these are frontline jobs. I mean, these are the the people that we do business with as as business travelers and leisure travelers, right? And we're not doing much business and leisure traveling these days, and I don't know when that's going to come back. Okay, now, now, we've sort of speculated what the unemployment rate might be on election day. We thought it was going down, bearing in mind the last uh, numbers on unemployment. Eight, nine percent. But I'm wondering whether it does hit 10 percent, if it stays up at 10 percent, or does it drop back down to seven or eight by election day in November? And is there a big difference between 8% and 10% at this point? You have so many people out of work, right? So many people uh, trying to find their footing back in this now, still in the middle of a pandemic uh, economy. That is a tough position to be in. You know, I always learned sort of, you know, back of the envelope math that 10% unemployment is when the social fabric of a, of a civilization starts to come unglued, right? That you want to keep, you have an unemployment rate mm. below 10% or, or think, you know, bad things start happening. And it's incredibly imperative that we get the job situation uh, worked out. One of the interesting things about uh, Joe Biden, who's running for president, of course, is releasing today his economic strategy and plan. And his first step is get the pandemic under control before you can get the job situation under control. So a very pandemic-focused economic plan from them. 
And that, I think, we are out of time, but, but that, of course, shows the difference between Biden and the president. Look, there's so much we could talk about. We'll do it more uh, tomorrow, hopefully, when we've seen Biden's okay. plan. Uh, thank you, Christine Romans, uh, with nice us to see you. this morning. China's inflation numbers are out, and it's pushed the stock market higher. And usually, of course, you're hoping to see inflation at the moment. You don't want the risk of deflation. Well, now the CPI picked up to 2.5% from a year ago. The Shanghai market rallied for eight straight days. John Defterius, our emerging markets editor. John, let's put aside the fact we know that there's an element of manipulation in China's market at the moment that's driven this. And the resurgence of inflation, I never thought we'd say it, but it's good news. Well, in this instance, it is, Richard, because it's almost Goldilocks inflation. It's not too hot, not too cold, right? You want a little bit of inflation to reignite the economy, and that's what we're seeing there. Uh, at the same time, there's almost an interesting narrative coming forward here between the U.S. and China. Who has uh, the duel here? Who's going to win the duel of the best-performing market? In Asia, by far, it is Shanghai. Uh, it is uh, on fire eight days in a row. And if you look at the year-to-day chart, most of that has been coming here at the end of June and July, up 17% over the month, and most of those gains coming in this week alone, better than half of them. But there's a couple of drivers here, Richard. You talked about the inflation. The economy's on the mend. We've had two PMI reports, one for services and one for manufacturing, uh, and they were up in June. So this is good news for Xi Jinping. But at the same time, you're talking about manipulation. You had a state equities journal suggesting this is a normal bull run. That's extremely odd. And then went on to say, and I thought this was an interesting twist, it even helps diplomatically China on the world scene. And sure enough, today, the foreign minister held a press conference, uh, Wang Yi, saying that the U.S. needs to change its narrative right now. It's too negative on its policy. And at the same time, U.S.-China relations haven't been this poor for four decades since the reopening of China into this social capitalist market that they have today. So you, you know the challenges. Hong Kong with the security law, uh, Huawei, uh, ZTE, the telecom maker, TikTok right now, and the hard line by the Trump White House. And they're almost playing the victim right now. And I'm surprised so far, Richard, it's not spilling into the Shanghai market or on Wall Street as well, with NASDAQ posting that record yesterday. NASDAQ's at a record and looks like it'll hit another today. And that's just perverse. I mean, it may be justified in terms of uh, the way the investors see it, but when you've got the other alternatives of seeing the unemployment mm. numbers that we're seeing, it's just weird, uh, somewhat uh, unseemly. Mm. China, where we're not even sure what the numbers really are, I don't know, John, how far we can take that Shanghai record or that Shanghai number to, to, to the bank. Well, you know, this is a, another context. If you have 1% to 2% growth and the rest of the world is not expanding and actually in a deep recession of anywhere from 3 to 6% this year, uh, they're justifying the rally in itself. And it's definitely being uh, juiced on here by uh, the government. But uh, let's go back to 2014 and 15, Richard. This could end very badly. The last time we heard this language coming uh, from Beijing and the financial center of Shanghai saying, like, this is normal, go into the stock market, uh, margin loans are available. Uh, we had a, a, a market double in a year between that period of time, and bang, it just that bubble blew up in, in China. They're trying to talk that away right now, but it's starting to feel a lot like 2014 and 15. John Dutterius uh, with China. Thank you, John. Now, Hong Kong, let's stay in the region. Hong Kong is on 
high alert, uh, whether we call it a second or a third wave, doesn't really matter. The number of coronavirus cases has risen sharply and it continues to do so. Dozens of new cases since Sunday. CNN's Will Ripley is in Hong Kong. Now, what happened? What changed, Will? Hong Kong had been doing so well. So what went wrong? Arguably, it's still doing well, Richard, if you think about the fact that it's a densely populated city of 7 million people with just 1,300 and change coronavirus cases, more than 1,200 of them fully recovered, and just seven deaths. But yes, the trend is troubling in the last few days because, as you mentioned, there have been dozens of new cases, and more troubling, they're not coming in from people traveling from other countries. These are local transmission cases, and that's very troubling because a lot of them, they're finding they can't do contact tracing. They can't figure out where people are catching the virus from. Why is that so dangerous? Because that's how it starts spreading, and the small numbers can turn big very quickly. We are waiting to get some guidance and clarity from the Hong Kong government as to what steps they plan to take right. to combat this because locally, uh, local transmission is far more tricky when you have people intermingling. Yes, everyone here in Hong Kong pretty much wears a mask when they go outside. But people are still going to dinner. They're going to the gym. They're going, uh, you know, to a, a number of different things that are being allowed under these new relaxed, um, you know, re restrictions here in Hong Kong that allow for a more normal sense uh, of life but could also turn the city into a breeding ground for the virus. So will they go back to a lockdown scenario like we saw earlier this year? This is reality of life in the pandemic, Richard. You can you know, be given back these freedoms and then just as easily they can be taken away, at least in countries right. and places like this territory that have taken coronavirus very seriously from the get-go. Yeah, now, Will, this testing regime that's in place, testing on arrival, I know you've actually been through it, but some of the airlines, United Airlines, is postponing returning to Hong Kong because its crew would have to be tested upon arrival. So what's the problem here? Well, this is new. Uh, requiring COVID-19 testing for flight crew is, is one response to this spiking cases that they're seeing here in Hong Kong. Because most people who come in, including myself, when I came back from Japan, you have to get tested right at the airport. Then you wait at an airport, uh, you know, or a government, uh, you know, hotel near the airport, sometimes overnight for your results to come back. Then they give you one of these. It's an electronic wristband. You have to wear it and stay inside your home for 14 days. And apparently if you do leave your home, I didn't risk it uh, because this thing would go off supposedly and the police could show up at your door. Flight crew, diplomats, Certain others have been exempt from those rules. Now they're still getting tested at the airport, but because their jobs require them to travel in and out, they're still allowed to go into the city, go about their normal lives unchecked. And some are wondering if that is one of the reasons that you're seeing more coronavirus cases here. If there are some, you know, if there's some lax testing, some loopholes in this, what, you know, Hong Kong has considered a hermetically sealed system, shutting off the borders with mainland China, restricting all travel except for Hong Kong residents and requiring this 14 day quarantine. So we really just have to wait and see what the Hong Kong government decides are the next steps given that they now do believe there are some clusters of community spread. Another area of concern, senior centers. There are a lot of people who got sick at senior centers. They're asking, why aren't more of the staff members at you know, these retirement homes being tested as well? Like half of the staff instead of just two or three, which is what they're doing right now. Will Ripley, who is in Hong Kong, 12 hours ahead of me there. Will, thank you. Now, other stories making news around the world to bring to your attention. President Trump's demanding that schools reopen next month. Now, he blasted his own CDC, Center for Disease Control, the guidelines that are in place for schools. 
He's calling for measures that very tough, or he's calling the CDC measures very tough and expensive. Joe Johns uh, now reports on exactly what the president would prefer. President Trump's push to reopen schools is going against the advice of some of his own top health officials and as coronavirus cases surge in at least 33 states. We're finding out that learning by computer is not as good as learning in the classroom. We want to learn in the classroom, so our schools, we want them open in the fall. The president complained about the CDC's guidance on a safe return to in-person learning this fall in a tweet, writing, they're very tough and expensive, and they're asking schools to do very impractical things. Hours later, the vice president made this announcement. The president said today we just don't want the guidance to be too tough, uh, and that's the reason why next week, uh, CDC is going to be issuing a new set of tools. Some of the CDC's current suggestions include wearing face coverings, keeping desks six feet apart in classes, and closing communal spaces like playgrounds and lunchrooms. Trump comparing the U.S. to European countries that are allowing schools to open, like Germany, Denmark, Norway, and Sweden, ignoring the recent record highs in new cases here while those countries continue to see lows. CDC Director Dr. Robert Redfield both defending and downplaying his own guidelines. I want to make it very clear that what is not the intent of CDC's guidelines is to be used as a rationale to keep schools closed. Remember, it's guidance. It's not requirements. Pence also making this claim. We're actually seeing early indications uh, of a percent of positive testing flattening in Arizona and Florida and Texas. But the positivity rates of all three states have been steadily increasing since June and are currently well above 10 percent. Even with pressure from the White House, some state leaders say they'll only open schools when it's safe to do so. I'm not sending kids and our education workforce into our schools unless it's safe. It's that simple. We're listening to scientists, not threats, not politicians. Meantime, Dr. Anthony Fauci telling the Wall Street Journal that public health and economic freedom don't have to be at odds. We shouldn't think of it as one against the other. Because once you start thinking there's public health and then there's the economy opening, it looks like they're opposing forces. So what we're trying to do is to get the public health message, if heard and implemented, be actually a gateway to facilitate opening in an easier way. Now, China is hitting out at Australia's move to suspend its extradition, extradition agreement with Hong Kong. Australia says it's in response to the new Hong Kong security law imposed by China. It's also extending visa privileges for Hong Kong citizens. Beijing said Australia's actions were a gross interference in China's domestic affairs. Coming up, the world waits for a vaccine. The issue, of course, is who gets it first. It's one of an issue of equitable distribution. Also, mass graves in Brazil. President Bolsonaro is still upbeat, even with the virus. We'll hear from the governor of Sao Paulo in this hour. The 
Well, welcome back to uh, First Move. It is a Thursday. Uh, we'll be looking at the futures in just a moment. The market is out due to open in eight minutes from now. It could be another strongish day. In fact, the futures are mostly higher. Uh, the Nasdaq is set for fresh records in itself. The, Na- the, the Dow, I mean, look at it, it's barely changed. The jobless claims rose by 1.3 million last week. They're trending lower, but it is a slow pace. New pressure on global businesses. The kitchenware, kitchenware retailer, Sieur Le Terble, is filing for Chapter 11. Another retailer, remember Brooks Brothers went yesterday. The UK drugstore chain Boots, Boots the Chemist, is to cut 4,000 jobs. That's around 7% of the workforce. And the UK department store chain John Lewis is closing several stores. Hundreds of jobs are at risk. Meanwhile, the Japanese retail giant Fast Retailing is cutting its full-year forecast. Contrast that depressing level of job losses, markets under pressure, with what we're seeing and hearing out of Asia at the moment, where we're seeing strong gains for Chinese stocks. The Shanghai Composite is at more than 13% year-to-date, easily outpacing the S&P, which is down 2%. China today reporting inflation. Wholesale prices down 3% from a year ago. Consumer inflation rose. Food prices are up 11% year on year. And the US-China tensions persist. The White House could issue new executive orders against China soon amid growing anger over the Hong Kong security law. Leila Miller joins me, the CEO of the China Beige Book. We are trying, good to see you, Leila, we are trying to understand, trying to, to... to fathom in this strong reaction in China, the market in China, which bearing in mind all the Chinese markets for exports are in deep trouble. So what, what is powering this market? Well, the, the first thing to keep in mind is that in China, the stock market has absolutely nothing to do with the real economy. There is a zero correlation. The reason there's a bull market rally in China is because the state media came out with a front page editorial telling people to invest in the healthy bull market. Uh, this is being done, of course, to prep everybody for much better second quarter numbers, which the Chinese government was always going to announce simply because they claimed victory over the virus, they claimed that there was a strong recovery, so now they have to release economic data. So these are all intertwined, but the reality is that what happens in the stock market is being dictated out of a uh, megaphone in Beijing. It has nothing to do with economic fundamentals either way. Okay, so, so let's assume to some extent they are attempting to create their own virtuous circle. Get people to buy, they buy, market goes up, economic activity looks better. But if it's smoke and mirrors, eventually that will become clear. And John Defterius earlier in the program was specifically saying, let's remember previous times when the market collapsed in Shanghai. Are we at risk of that? Certainly. You know, if the stock market doesn't reflect the economic fundamentals, people, some people will be in for a rude awakening. I think what's confusing people right now is that there is improvement in China. But when you look at the PMIs and you see month-on-month improvement, or you look at our data, you see quarter-on-quarter improvement, there is improvement from an economy that was shut down a few months ago. But the problem is Chinese official data is claiming improvement on year. And that's not only a fallacy, it's ridiculous. There's no way that there's any way that the economy is anywhere close to it was, you know, a year 
year ago. You're not seeing a job market. You're not seeing growth numbers. You're not seeing any part of this economy uh, broken down big or small that looks as good as it did uh, even a year ago. So it's about having a very modest expectations on how this growth will improve. The Chinese problem right now is that they're hyping this up at V-shaped recovery. And what we're seeing in China right now, we can see clear in the data, it is most definitely not a V-shaped recovery. So the trade sanctions, uh, the tariffs, so to speak, are still in place, most of them from the U.S. I can't see realistically them being removed uh, between now and the election. It doesn't serve President Trump to so do. So China's clearly learned to live with them. Who currently holds the whip hand between China and the U.S.? Well, they're, they're in sort of this non-virtuous circle right now, whereas President Trump wants to ramp up the anti-China rhetoric uh, in the run-up to the November election. But he's hamstrung by the fact that if he goes too far, he's going to lose his phase one trade deal. Uh, I think that things are moving in that direction anyways. Congress is agitating, national fervor agitating for a stronger response against China across the board. It's going to be very difficult for President Trump to hold back the tide on this and to continue to defend a deal which particularly because of COVID, but also because of its extremely ambitious targets to start with, the Chinese are not even coming right. close to living up to. So, so you got a real problem there that's, so, that's probably going to fall apart in the fall. Okay, fall apart in the fall just before the election, perhaps. But you've got the Chinese foreign minister saying today in a very blunt set of comments that Chinese-U.S. relations are the worst they've been since the 1970s. Now, bearing in mind there is an election in the U.S. just four months away, does it matter that these relations are bad? I know that might sound really simplistic, but at the end of the day, if everybody muddles through, does it matter? Well, it, it wouldn't matter if this was all for, you know, election, electoral, uh, electioneering, electoral purposes, and things were going to go back to sort of a, a, a nice, neutral relationship in the aftermath. But the reality is that no matter who wins this election, the relationship with China is going to continue to deteriorate, not just for months, but for years. Uh, this is this is on a, a relationship that's been on a collision course for a while. And I whether you see a President Biden, whether you see a second term for President Trump, you're going to see extreme pressure uh, from Congress from 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 uh, from from the states pushing for there to be a stronger responses against China for Hong Kong for South China Sea uh, on on trade uh, just across the board so I, I think that this is not going to improve anytime soon I don't think it's a three-month blip Leyland very grateful to have had your perspective this morning we'll talk more about this uh, obviously before the election but thank you so I approve I, I appreciate uh, what you joining us this morning now in just a moment, most of us are asking the core question, when will a vaccine be ready for COVID-19? Our next guest asks a very different question. Who will get the vaccine when it is ready? Who will be first and how will the rest of the world get it? It's First Move. I'm Richard Quest. Markets are open. Welcome to First Move. We are off to the races and an early indication, very early, just a couple of moments into the trading day, uh, but they are higher. There we go. Well, the Dow isn't, but let's not worry about that. That was actually lower in futures. So I guess we should. Oh, there we go. There, the Dow's having a bit of a wobble. The Nasdaq powers ahead, um, hitting a fresh record high. 
Apple is at a record after the latest jobs data. It's extraordinary, this particularly on the back of China. And the economics are not bad, but they're not good. 1.3 million Americans filed new claims for jobless benefits last week. The continuing claims number is above 18 million. Rising COVID cases is what everybody is concerned about. More than 12 million confirmed cases worldwide. And the U.S. accounts for a quarter of all cases. In the United States, more than 58,000 new cases were reported in the U.S. on Wednesday. I think it may have even hit 60,000 cases. Dr. Anthony Fauci today saying that states with rising cases should consider shutting down again. We will talk COVID in a moment after we have considered the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court is due to rule in the next hour or so on Donald Trump's tax returns and whether they should be released. Jessica Schneider is our justice correspondent and and with me. Okay, so who's been to just remind us so that we are well briefed for when this result comes. Who was seeking the tax returns and where do we stand so far? So, Richard, these are two different cases. And in one case, three congressional committees, of course, led by the Democrats, they're seeking the president's financial records. Then there's another case out of uh, New York City. The Manhattan district attorney is seeking not only tax uh, records and financial documents, but also, crucially, eight years of the president's personal and business tax returns. Of course, that's a biggie because the president has refused to release any of his tax returns, sort of bucking the trend of all previous presidents here. So there are two different cases. What's interesting here is that every single lower court has overruled the president, essentially, saying that the president cannot block these subpoenas. And crucially, that's because these subpoenas are not even to the president. They are to his financial institutions and number of institutions. And Richard, these institutions have said that if the court orders them to release these documents, they will comply. So these documents will be out there. However, the House committees are only seeking, you know, financial documents, financial records, and not the tax returns. It's the district attorney case, the prosecutors in New York, who are seeking those eight years of tax returns. But if they, in fact, get them, if the Supreme Court rules in their favor, the public likely won't see the tax returns after all, even though they've been clamoring for them for the past four years or so. Um, because that's because it's for a grand jury investigation and grand jury secrecy rules require that any evidence be kept secret. So unless there's some sort of leak, we might not even see the tax returns, even if the Supreme Court rules to release them. Jessica, the result is, the result, the decision, it's not a contest in that sense. There is, the decision is uh, just after 10 o'clock, we will have live coverage of it. You will be there and you will bring us it when it happens. I'm grateful to you, Jessica Schneider, who Thank is you. in Washington. The race for a COVID-19 vaccine is intense. The U.S. government gave $1.6 billion to Novavax, which is a company here in the United States that is developing a vaccine. It's one of several companies that's received large sums of money from the U.S. government, hoping to be the first. Novavax CEO explained the process. And that it's stable, and we do that throughout that process. The other thing we have to do is show that we can scale up production, and that's, that's the other half of what we bring to the table. 
Uh, we have a vaccine whose platform is based upon simple recombinant proteins that are that are stable at room temperature for some period of time and, and would be shipped and stored in uh, four to eight degrees of so refrigerated temperatures uh, over a long mm -hmm. period of time. And so uh, if we can do that and we can scale up, which is what we're planning on doing, not just in the U.S., but globally, we just bought a very large manufacturing facility in the Czech Republic uh, a couple of months ago, and we can scale and we can produce at the levels of hundreds of millions of doses a month starting next year. Dr. Seth uh, Berkeley is with me. He is the CEO of Gavi, the Vaccine Alliance, which is there to focus on providing vaccines for the poor. Well, well, Seth, we've got an enormous number of companies receiving vast sums of money. The EU's given money, the UK's given money, the US government's given at least four and a half billion. They say that they are doing it you know, to, to, to get the vaccine done. But your fear is they are hoarding. They are buying stocks in advance. So first of all, Richard, nice to see you again and glad you survived the COVID uh, tornado. Um, in terms of, of, of what you're saying, you just talked about Novavax. Novavax also received finance for CEPI, who is our partner in this effort. What we're trying to do is to put together a global buying consortium. Why is that important? Normally, we focus on the developing countries, but we realized if we just focused on the poorest countries, there would be no vaccine to distribute to those countries. So what we're trying to do is put together a facility that will allow purchase of a full range of vaccines, a large portfolio, 10 to 15 vaccines that'll maximize the chances for success and also work to scale up, as you've heard from the other manufacturers in multiple sites around the world at risk. So as soon as we know a vaccine works, we can make it available in developed and developing countries simultaneously because we are only safe if we're all safe. If we have big reservoirs of virus that are circulating and even if a country is fully vaccinated, you will be unable to go back to a normal economy. You won't be able to travel, trade, move around, do commerce. Right, so we really need to think about this globally. But, but the, the, once a vaccine is available, and it, it seems highly likely there will be several that will work in some shape or form, how are you going to hold these governments to account and remind them, yeah, all right, your people may be towards the front of the queue, but we need to make sure other countries get it, the developing world gets it. How do you hold their feet to the fire on that? Well, of course, we are making agreements with companies as well. And of course, they may be through different manufacturing facilities that are being used right now. So we've already announced, for example, AstraZeneca, that we also have an agreement for 300 million doses. That's not going to be in the same facility that other doses are being made. But the idea here is to try to get a diversity of producers to make vaccines. Now, of course, we believe that you need a global response. But if the U.S. government, for right. example, pays large amounts to make vaccines and push the science forward, you know, that's great because then we can work with those but companies Seth, to take those vaccines forward. Seth, are you, you know, I'm, I'm looking at you as sort of as an honest broker here. Are you satisfied that the governments 
and the pharmaceutical companies working together with that money, billions and billions, appreciate that when it's available, the developing world has to have doses at the same time. Well, I know certainly that the companies understand that because they realize that having a few countries get vaccinated and everybody be without is not good for their business, not good for their PR. Obviously, we're trying to convince governments the same. If we could vaccinate 20% of the populations of all countries, we'd be likely to end the acute phase of the pandemic. That's much more efficient than having a few countries vaccinated and the pandemic continuing to spread in the other parts of the world. But that's going to require a mind shift. Right. That mind shift we will follow closely and you hopefully will help us. Always good to see you, Seth, and thank you for the good wishes. I appreciate you coming on the program this morning. In a good moment, to see you, Richard. The governor, the governor of Sao Paulo is not only fighting coronavirus as the pandemic, he has other issues on his agenda too, related to how coronavirus is being treated. In a moment, he'll be with us live on the program. First move. Brazil's health ministry has reported nearly 45,000 new coronavirus cases just in the past day. Brazil now, of course, has one of the highest infection rates and positivity rates anywhere in the world. Over 1.7 million cases, just behind the United States, frankly. Nearly 68,000 deaths in total, again, just behind the United States. 1,200 deaths in one day. And yet, despite this, the president, Jair Bolsonaro, who himself has just tested positive, took his mask off at a press conference. Now, he did take a few steps back, but he then went on to say, if you are affected by the virus, the possibility of something more serious is close to zero, which, of course, is arguably offensive to those families of victims who are buried in the mass graves that we've seen in Sao Paulo. The governor of Sao Paulo, the city governor, João Doria, who says Brazil's also fighting the Bolsonaro virus. The governor is with me now. Sir, I appreciate it. Thank you uh, for joining. Um, the, the, the reality is that the challenge now is, I mean, I hope the president makes a good recovery, but if he does without symptoms, he simply turns around and says to you and everybody else, look, this is nothing. It is just barely the flu. Well, Richard, it's a pleasure to be with you. Uh, it's, not, it's not a code. I'm sorry, and I hope that the President Bolsonaro gets better soon, obeying the health guidelines for the recovery from the COVID. But uh, he gives, I have to tell you, he gives the wrong example uh, to people in Brazil going to the streets without masks, for example. Uh, it's very hard to keep people home, respecting the health organization when you have a president who turns our world uh, weaker. It's very difficult. We have to combat, uh, it's a, a case where you have to combat two viruses, the coronavirus and the Bolsonaro virus. Right. There's not a lot you can do about this, though, is there? I mean, you end up with dueling messages. President says one thing, governor of the most populous city says another. 
Well, uh, Richard, we are doing the right thing in Sao Paulo and, and also in almost of the states of Brazil. We are a federation and uh, uh, we have very good governors in Brazil uh, working together with uh, the health organization. Brazil needs peace right now to combat the terrible crisis. Leaders must be united to save lives. I'm asking to the President Bolsonaro to come to the health uh, organization uh, suggestions and recommendations all the time, but it's very difficult because he has different position. And uh, I have to tell you, I learned to respect medicine and health. Faced with the pandemic, what should uh, uh, determine the steps of government official is science, is sure. medicine, is health, is not politics, is not the economy, uh, nor pressures. We cannot waste time when it comes to people's uh, right. lives, Richard. Can I just ask you, uh, Governor, th 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 there is this story, of course, that the, 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 the alleged corruption in terms of the purchase of ventilators. I understand, of course I understand, that the principal goal now is to deal with the health pandemic and to deal with the crisis. And that means vast sums of money sloshing around aiming to buy as much PPE, ventilators and medical equipment. Do you worry that some of this is being misused? Well, uh, Richard, uh, this is a, another big problem that we have in Brazil. Uh, of course, uh, the correct way was uh, the federal government uh, uh, make this structure and buy uh, respirators and buy medicines and buy masks and everything, and then distribute to the, the states in Brazil and also to the cities. And, and not uh, leave each state, we have 27 states uh, in Brazil and thousands of cities buying around the world uh, respirators and buying masks and, and buying medicine. Of course, uh, it's, uh, but, uh, it's very difficult to do that in a good way. And of course, uh, in the in the right way, uh, the correct position was government, the right. federal government, to uh, concentrate all uh, buying around the world and then distribute this okay. uh, to Brazil. Mr. Governor, thank you so much, sir. I, I've I've always loved my visits to your superb city. It's such an exciting, vibrant. Um, e economically active place and uh, I look forward to my next visit when hopefully under happier circumstances we can talk face to face without masks. I'm grateful to your time sir. Thank you. Richard, it will be uh, a great pleasure. Uh, you'll be quite welcomed here in Sao Paulo, Brazil. And, uh, but if you come during the pandemic, please use masks. I will, absolutely. Absolutely. Masks at the ready. Thank you, the governor there, uh, joining me. And it is worth mentioning just uh, to you, uh, the, the viewers, uh, that the, 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 I saw the governor there, of course, wearing his mask, quite properly wearing his mask. And of course, I'm not wearing a mask, but you need to know I'm in a room on my own. Yep, yeah, it's all here in my living room. That's the sofa. Really is. And um, so that, that, that is why. Now, when we come back in just a moment, many U.S. states have paused the reopening. Well, it sounds straightforward when I say it like that, but you'll realize, of course, that if you pause the reopening, those staff, <laughs> excuse me, the staff that you took back on have to be furloughed again.
It is first move, and you're very welcome. It's really simple. When the states reopened, people went back to work. Now, with the surge, bar workers and the like are being furloughed yet again. Vanessa Yurkovich has our story. For over two weeks, Warren Kugik battled COVID-19, isolated in his apartment in Fort Worth, Texas. It was brutal. It was a constant beating on your body. And he believes he got the virus when he went back to work mid-May, when bars in the state reopened nearly two months after being shut down. I really thought we should have waited a, a couple more weeks. You have to make that constant choice when you're, when you're in this type of business between your health and safety and, and working. Now, bars in Texas are closed again, and Kugik, who is symptom-free, is out of a job again. He was one of two million Texans who applied for unemployment from mid-March to mid-May. Weekly claims started to drop when bars and restaurants reopened. But now, like COVID-19 cases in the state, unemployment claims are on the rise again. I don't know if or when I'll be able to go back to work. I got about a month and a half, maybe two months before it gets super tight. It's also getting tight for bartender Randy Heitzman. She bought a brand new car in February and was just furloughed for a second time. Not what I would have done if I would have known I was going to go on unemployment and not have to work. The extra $600 a week in enhanced unemployment expires at the end of this month, leaving her financial future in jeopardy. If that $600 goes away, that is gone. Like, I don't, that doesn't even cover my rent. That's two to $300 a week. That's not, that's not livable for anybody at all, let alone somebody that has bills that are for somebody that's used to making twice that in a day. Omar Yifun reopened for just four days before closing Shoal Sound in service. I knew that the flood was coming. The risk of staying open as cases surge was too great, forcing him to lay off his employees for a second time. How do you turn around and, and ask for someone, to, you know, here we go again, like, I swear we're going to make it this time. You know, it's, it's, it's really humbling. Americans out of work have nothing but time. For Heitzman, she's using it to watch how elected officials are responding to the health and unemployment crisis. We're sitting at home, so the only thing that we have to do is to watch you. So the decisions that you're making might not have repercussions for you right now, but they will in November, and they will the next time we vote after that. That's First Move. I'm Richard Quest. Have a good day. When you work, you work next level. When you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. 
J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.